Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of the AfriCast. My name is Brendan Lotz and joining me as always is Clinton Matos. That's me. Hello everybody. And Robin Lichetti. Howdy. How are you guys doing on this uh, load shedded and rainy Friday day? It was good until uh, last night we got hit with load shedding. Um, it was hilarious. They put out an announcement saying, oh, there hasn't been load shedding uh, since July. And I'm like, yeah, well done. You did your job for two months and now you're messing it up again. It was, uh, you know, it's terrible. It's so bad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really not a good situation. Robin, how, how are you doing? Uh, about as good as can be expected. Uh, got the second jab uh, and we're good to go. Oh. Whatever, whatever happens down were the you, line. Were you uh, hit by load shedding yesterday? Luckily not, but I am expecting this evening. So dinner by candlelight for one. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm expecting load shedding. So, well, I wasn't hit by load shedding, and thankfully. Uh, I was hit by a power outage, though, uh, because of some lightning, because ESCOM and rain don't seem to work together. All's wet, Brendan. <laughs> the coal <laughs> is wet. Understand. <laughs> right, let's get into the news of the week. Clinton, there's a new Switch uh, on the market. Yes, yeah, so the distributor of Nintendo in South Africa, Core, invited us over to go try out the new OLED model switch. I still can't believe that the name of this is just OLED model. Um, I think a computer must have named it. But it's actually out today along with Metroid Dread, and we got to try out both. But I'm just going to focus on the OLED model now because we'll have a review of Metroid Dread um, sometime in the next week or so. And I think when we talked about this a few weeks ago when it was announced... Um, I was kind of dismissive because it just looked like very small changes. The screen is slightly bigger, but it's still the same resolution, but not OLED. Um, they redesigned the kickstand, they improved the audio, and they also redesigned the dock. And I thought, yeah, those are all nice, but is it really that compelling? And we joked about it, oh, and the storage was increased from 32 gigs to a massive 64 gigabytes. So we all had a bit of a laugh, um, but now that I used it, I'm kind of converted, um, and I really didn't expect to be. Uh, if you gave a lot of people the original Nintendo Switch or even the Nintendo Switch Lite, they kind of thought it was a bit of a toy because it didn't feel that premium. It didn't feel like a brand new device rolling out from Nintendo. It didn't feel like it was really worth the high price that you pay in South Africa. But now holding the OLED model, I don't have it here. Um, we didn't get a review sample yet, but holding it at that event, it really does feel like a brand new premium 2021 device. I I don't know what they did, but it seems like the entire fit and finish has been completely redone. And that sound, may sound ridiculous because it seems like all they did was change the screen. But I think they did completely new retooling of every part of the Switch. It feels premium and it feels more sturdy. And this might be because... I've been using a day one Nintendo Switch that's, what, more than four four years old at this point. But this this felt brand new, and this felt like somebody else had made it. And it feels a bit weightier. It is slightly heavier than the original Switch. But I, I'm just a bit blown away by the fact that just picking it up before you even turn it on, it feels so much more premium. And the um, the kickstand is probably my favorite thing in the world i can't believe how nice the kickstand is so a lot of people remember that the kickstand on the original switch is just the flimsiest most horrible thing in the world it's it really flimsy it breaks it it feels like they put it there at the last second they're like oh god we forgot about the the kickstand and if you put it into the the out position it's still very flippity floppity and it's just bad and the new one is so nice, guys. I, I can't even tell you. You can see a video of it, um, and we'll, we'll put a link to the story about the OLED model in the bottom of the story. But the hinges are so quality. It's, it's chef's kiss. There are two hinges, one on each side. And it isn't, I don't know what you'd call it. Some uh, hinges like this are geared, meaning that they only support the weight of something at certain degrees. So you don't have that much um, choice. And the original kickstand was only one one position you put it out and that's it if that doesn't work too bad this new one can go almost horizontal and it holds any position you give it it really feels like a top of the line quality hinge and there's two of them 
I, I just played with this. I didn't even want to play Metroid Dread. I just wanted to mess <laughs> around with the kickstand. I, the leap in quality is hilarious. It's so good. And then the dock. The dock is this innocuous thing. You know, I remember before the original Switch even launched, people saying, oh, the dock's going to have like a 4K upscaler or some kind of extra graphics. <laughs> and it has none of that. It's basically just a box of some wires. But even that has been redesigned and it feels so good. The original um, Switch dock is... It's really cheaply made. The plastic is so hollow and so scratchy, and a lot of people complaining that the um, the inside of the dock would scratch your uh, Switch's screen. This new dock on the inside is, uh, it's still plastic and rubber, but it's absolutely premium. I was just standing there, like, putting my hands inside of the dock. I cleaned it all afterwards with alcohol, so it was safe for the next people to go. I don't want to sound ridiculous. Yeah, I know the pandemic's still going on, but just that little... It, it must have cost them like 10 US cents to put a different coating inside of the, the dock. But it feels so premium and you pick up the dock and it doesn't just feel like it's going to disintegrate in your hands. The dock is so much better. And then um, on the other side, just the, the like latching mechanism to take off the little cover that um, keeps the wires in place. Even that feels better and premium. The dock has been almost completely redesigned. And now it has the Ethernet and all of that. We didn't get to use TV mode during the hands-on because... It's still the same Switch. If you are someone who uses the Nintendo Switch, like a regular console, and it's always plugged into the TV, the OLED model is not for you, obviously. But I really appreciate how great the dock is. They could have used the old one because uh, the main selling point of this new one is the stuff that happens in handheld mode. Mm. But Nintendo went that extra mile to make the dock so much better. And... The other thing I was really surprised about is the audio. So when this was announced, they just said, quote, unquote, enhanced audio. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay, Nintendo. But the audio is enhanced and it sounds so good. It sounds like a proper 2021 device. It doesn't sound scratchy or tinny. And when I got home, I actually broke out the original Nintendo Switch. And I listened to the audio and I was like, oh, God, I can't go back. <laughs> the, the speaker differences between the two models, like not even comparable. The OLED. OLED is just, it's so much better in terms of audio. And it's funny, I, I'm praising all this other stuff. I didn't even talk about the screen. The screen is kind of the last thing that uh, I was impressed by. It's bigger, yeah, but I didn't really notice that much of a difference because I'm holding it at the same distance away from my face. I still have the same eyes that I do, but the difference is negligible. It's a, it's, it's a really small some people, someone who's there was saying, oh, I can really see the difference and, you know, good for them. But to me, the screen is kind of the last consideration if I was considering getting this or I was giving advice to somebody else getting this. So the screen is bigger. It is OLED, but it's the same resolution. I don't know what else people were expecting. It was the one part of the this new model that I was expecting to be underwhelmed by and I was underwhelmed by. But everything around this feels like a brand new console. And that really surprised me. I really do think that Nintendo has retooled their entire assembly to make this new console. And it really does feel like the old one is a toy and this new one is a premium device. And oh boy, it better be a premium device. It costs 8,000 Rand in South Africa. And I don't want to get into the whole thing about it being more expensive here than it is overseas. I'm not sweeping that under the rug. It's just that I've written so many stories about that. And on this podcast, I've complained about it many times. I'll put links to all of that. It's a lot of money. And if you already own a Switch, I just can't in good conscience suggest you buy this one. But if you are getting a Switch for the first time, I know a lot of people have been waiting out for the new Zelda game or the new Metroid game or the new Pokemon game. And now with all those games coming out, they might be saying, okay, now I'm going to buy a Switch and I'm going to get those games. And if you are someone who's new, the OLED might be what you want to go for if money isn't you know, a, a concern for you. It's 7,999 Rand. The old switch has been reduced to 7,000. So there's a 1,000 Rand difference. And if you are buying new and you aren't pinching pennies, I think that 1,000 Rand extra is worth paying just because it feels so much better. Um, the one thing is that the Joy-Cons still feel the same to me. Some people who were there are having their hands on say that the buttons feel a bit more responsive. I didn't really feel that. I think it's just the difference between using something that's brand new out of the box and using something that's a few years old. 
So I'm not going to waste any more of you guys' time because we do have other news stories to get to and we do need to put Facebook over the flames today. But I just wanted to talk about the OLED for a while. We'll have a review on Metroid Dread in the next week or so. I don't know when we're getting our review copy of the actual console. It should be coming sometime in the future. But I was pleasantly surprised. I really was ready to write this off. And Nintendo impressed me. So that's the new model of the Switch. I still want a 1080p handheld and a 4K TV, but maybe that will come in the near future. Words I never thought I'd hear in the same sentence. Nintendo impressed me. Yeah. I've always been... Yeah, I'm very skeptical about every company in the world, and the Switch has a lot of problems, which they still haven't fixed. But what they were trying to do with this one, they succeed. They succeeded with, and they did a lot of nice extra stuff, like redesigning the dock. So, yeah, thumbs up. But it's still very expensive, and you still might be better with the other models if you're worried about price. Cool, Robin. You've got some news about uh, investment from Google. Yes, from one big company to another. <laughs> so. Uh, Google held their Google for Africa event uh, this week. It's also the inaugural event, which I was really surprised by because I'm fairly sure we've had events of this ilk in the past. Yeah, we But that's neither have. here nor there. Um, yeah, so so uh, we had a bunch of MDs from different regions across the continent uh, talking about initiatives that Google is pioneering over the next few years. But the really key announcement came from Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai, and that was around a $1 billion investment that Google, Google will be making into Africa over the next five years. Um, the kind of focus of this uh, investment wasn't unpacked fully, but the, the kind of, I guess, the broader strokes are that it's aimed at digital transformation across the continent. And Google are now looking to, one, inject a bit of impetus towards the SME market, as well as partnering with local carriers, networks, and vendors to kind of bump up the level of connectivity across Africa. So that's kind of really the, the focus of the of this investment over the next five years. Uh, unfortunately, Google didn't kind of break down how much is going towards what. It was kind of more a, lot, a, a more generalized figure. Um, but uh, during his kind of keynote, Pichai said that uh, we've made huge strides t- together over the past decade, but there's more work to do to make the internet accessible, affordable, and useful for every African. Today, I'm excited to reaffirm my commitment to the continent through an investment of over of one billion over five years to support Africa's digital transformation, to cover a range of initiatives from improved connectivity to investment in startups. So that kind of sums up what uh, we mentioned in the beginning. Um, uh, some of the other kind of initiatives that Google have been working on is uh, the subsea cable Equiano, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and that's going to run through South Africa. Namibia, Nigeria, and St. Helena in order to connect Africa to Europe. Um, so that's, a, that's another big project that they're working on. Uh, as far as connectivity goes, they'll be working with some of the local carriers. Um, one that was announced is uh, Kenya's Safaricom. Uh, they're launching a device financing plan in Kenya, and that's hoping to kind of make access to technology and, by extension, connectivity a lot easier in the region. Um, and Google can also mention that they are looking at partners like Airtel, MTN, Orange, uh, Vodacom as well in, in, in the, I guess, the larger African continent. Um, so, yeah, there are quite a few interesting initiatives going on at the moment. One of the ones that kind of piqued my interest was the Cradle of Creativity uh, project. And that's kind of trying to highlight uh, African heritage from an arts and culture perspective. So they've created a dedicated online platform that will look to try and highlight uh, creative history and heritage across Africa. Um, so uh, as far as what institutions that Google are working on for the Cradle of Creativity project, uh, they're working with the Origin Center in South Africa and then the uh, Yemesi Shailon Museum of Art in Nigeria. I'm pretty sure I butchered that. Uh, my apologies for that. But they're working with these two organizations in order to kind of highlight um, local arts and culture, and then kind of deliver it on, on a digital platform. So those are just some of the key announcements that uh, the Google for Africa event outlined. But obviously the, the big headline grabber is the $1 billion that's going to be pumped into the continent and potentially see connectivity get a real injection in there. 
Uh, Robert, did they discuss misinformation at all? Because uh, they're kind of the arbiters of news in a lot of countries, including South Africa, and our elections are coming up next month. Did they mention anything about that? I don't recall anything during the keynote. It, it was it was very much business focus. A lot of startup and SME kind of initiatives, as well as telecoms. Uh, there wasn't mention of any kind of initiatives or misinformation um, focused agendas that, that Google might have in, have, in, have in the works. So, yeah, it was very much more business than misinformation. I mean, well, I hope to see... Sorry, Clinton, go ahead. No, there's still a lot of money, and they could always say we're going to use part of it to fight X, Y, and Z in the future. So I wouldn't rule it out entirely. Yeah, I was just about to say the same thing. It's uh, it's nice to see investments into Africa. I do wish that they were a bit more upfront about where that investment was going because while it's a big number, Africa is a big continent, uh, and there are many countries that could use some of that money in order to increase connectivity. So worth Yeah, you spot on. I think like South Africa is very fortunate when you compare us to the rest of the continent. Mm. And a lot of the time they're mentioning countries like Nigeria and Kenya, and those are very much economic hubs on the continent. Yeah. And not that connectivity aren't issues in those countries, but there are other countries where connectivity is even more dire and potentially needs to be addressed as well. So yeah. hopefully they have those regions in mind as well. Yeah, that's a long conversation. Perhaps we'll we'll, di- we'll dive into that in another podcast sometime. Uh Moving on quickly, uh, NASA is going to pull an Armageddon. If you don't know what Armageddon is, then you were likely born after 1998. Uh, but NASA is going to shoot a, a spacecraft at an asteroid uh, on 27th of November, or 23rd of November, rather. The mission is dubbed the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, and as the name implies, what NASA is trying to do is steer an asteroid off of its trajectory. Um, It's making use of something called the kinetic impactor technique, which is essentially slamming something into an asteroid and hoping it affects its trajectory. Um, The reason I say hoping is because this has never been done before and we don't know whether this is something that is possible. The asteroid that that NASA is targeting is called uh, Didymos, and uh, it's actually targeting a little moonlet that orbits that uh, asteroid. Uh, the DART mission is expected to arrive at the asteroid in 2022 and will collide with the moonlet at a speed of 6.6 kilometers per second. Uh, that doesn't sound very fast, but I mean, we are in space and the moonlet only measures a 160 meters in diameter. Um, so this mission will launch off of a Falcon 9 rocket from the Vandenberg Space Force Base in California on the 23rd of November with a targeted launch time of 7.20 a.m., uh, that's South African time. Um, and yeah, as I mentioned, it'll only arrive at the moonlet in 2022. But this is a, a really cool thing that NASA is doing because uh, whether you want to admit it or not, asteroids are a really big problem. Uh, mainly, not not so much the ones we can see, but more the ones that we can't see. And when you understand how few asteroids we can see, uh, <laughs> it becomes really concerning. Uh, we wrote a story about this and we included a video from Veritasium uh, who takes a look at how much damage a relatively small asteroid, how much damage a relatively small asteroid could do. And when I say relatively small, I mean less than one kilometer in diameter. Um, So yeah, really interesting little mission that NASA is doing. uh, And I hope it works because some of the other solutions to uh, getting rid of an asteroid that might be headed for Earth um, uh, aren't really the best. Like, uh, there's solutions that involve shooting a laser at the, uh, at the, the asteroid. Um, blowing it up is not really a good idea because that might just cause it to shatter and create smaller asteroids that then form together because of gravity. Um, and then you have a, a rubble pile that's headed for Earth. So be cool to see whether this works. I don't know if it's going to... Uh, it seems like a long shot, but I guess we got to try something just in case one day an asteroid does threaten humanity and Earth itself. So yeah, I hope yeah. that well, I hope that they do uh, that they uh, live stream this and that they have that Aerosmith song oh my, up for the launch. I tried so hard not to include that music video or a reference to Armageddon in the story. <laughs> 
Have you well, guys? That, I'd say that's poor form from you. <laughs> you, you guys are that uh, behind the not behind the scenes that DVD um, commentary with uh, Ben Affleck where he talks about just how stupid the movie is. Yes, and uh, Michael Bay tells him to shut up. <laughs> it's the funniest thing ever, and it made me really um, appreciate Ben Affleck. It's yeah, like, it's really funny because he's like, why didn't they just say? Why didn't they just train astro- astronauts to drill? Wouldn't that have been easier? You don't know that you got to hit around the half pipe in the hot. <laughs> I'll put a link to that video. It is hilarious. I wish I could find that DVD commentary for the whole movie because it's yeah. It's also, it's, I'm sure yes. that would be a fun watch. But yeah, the double asteroid redirection test happening in November, or well, the launch happening in November, the actual test happening in uh, 2022. Right, let's get on to the main story this week. And as Clinton uh, alluded to earlier in this podcast, we are holding Facebook over the fire. Um, This week, Facebook had uh, a bad week. I think that's putting it very lightly. Uh, First off, on Monday, the the social network, as well as its ancillary uh, social networks, including Instagram and WhatsApp, all went offline. Um, And on the same day, or at the weekend, rather, a whistleblower came forward uh, to speak about how Facebook really doesn't do as much as it can uh, in order to protect users. Um, let's start off with the outage. Robin, you covered this outage. So uh, do, do you know what happened in t- behind the scenes? So um, Facebook issued an update a few hours after activity was restored or in the process of being restored globally. Um, they issued a post and the VP for infrastructure, Santosh uh, Janardin, uh, he kind of uh, outlined what the issue was. Uh, he said that our engineering teams have learned that configuration changes on the backbone routers that coordinate network traffic between our data centers caused issues that interrupted this communication. Um, this disruption of two network traffic had a cascading effect on the way our data centers communicate bringing our services to a halt. And the services in question are, of course, Facebook itself, Facebook Messenger, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Oculus. So pretty much the entire consumer-facing side of Facebook was inaccessible that day. You also noted that uh, they did some investigations and there is no evidence that any uh, user data was compromised. Um, Regarding that statement, uh, we'll have to wait and see. That's not the first time that Facebook has, has outlined that and been wrong. Um, but yeah, it looks like it was a technical issue that very easily seemed to knock down their entire network, which is a little concerning. Uh, yeah, if, if you're using something like WhatsApp Business, uh, yeah. it, it's not a good look. I mean, more, worse than that, though. I mean, so many businesses operate off of Facebook these days, uh, especially in on continents like Africa uh, and the Middle East and uh, Southeast Asia. Like, a lot of people use Facebook for business. I mean, beyond that, just influences on Instagram and that sort of thing. And then even beyond that, if you're just a streamer that wanted to play some Beat Saber or whatever's available on the Oculus Store, I mean, you weren't able to do that. And, I mean, the fact that it went down so quickly and for so long uh, is really, really concerning um, from both a user standpoint as well as a, hey, look at what is the internet being held together by duct tape and twigs at this point. Um, I do think it's worth mentioning that Facebook's infrastructure is very much developed in-house. And the way that this sounds like it went down is... Somebody did something wrong and everything uh, just spiraled out of control from there. Um, not a good look for them, especially given how much uh, how important Facebook has become. I mean, we give the social network a lot of, of uh, grief here on at Hypertext. Uh, but it is something that has become entrenched in so many people's lives. Uh, that having been said, did any of you actually notice these services being down, Clinton? No, I was, um, I was, I can't remember. I was playing some video game. I played that and then I watched some YouTube like I usually do before I go to bed. Mm. And then right before I go to bed, I looked on Twitter and people were talking about some kind of outage. And I was like, oh, I'll look at that in the morning. And then I read that all of this happened. And then I also got a lot of messages on like some of my 
um, Facebook groups, people are like, oh, if you send me a message now, I'll sell you something for one rand. And then they're like, oh, no one claimed it because there was an outage. So I, I didn't notice it at all. <laughs> I yeah maybe I'm in the minority because I I use all those products that you just talked about um, unwillingly sometimes but I didn't notice it at all. Maybe I'm just a bit uh, blind. Robin, did you notice it at all? Uh, yeah, on WhatsApp I tried to do some calls. Yeah, uh, they weren't ha- they weren't going through, and I thought maybe my Wi-Fi was acting up again. Everything seemed fine, though, and that's when I turned on the news and I saw that uh, Facebook's suffering a major outage across all its services. So I didn't notice it at first uh, until I tried to go onto Instagram and I was refreshing and it wasn't working. Uh, Like you, Robin, I thought it was my Wi-Fi. But then I went onto Twitter and saw that, oh, Facebook is down. That makes sense. Um, And yeah, but I mean, I think for most of us here in South Africa, unless you are a night owl, uh, I don't think you were really affected by it or you noticed it. However, that having been said, I mean, it's still not a great look for Facebook, um, especially in other parts of the world where people were awake and using the service or using it to do calls, social, manage social pages, that sort of thing. So, yeah. Of the day in America. Sorry? It was the middle of the day in America. Yeah. The worst time it could have happened. Yeah, especially while everybody is trying to procrastinate instead of work. I mean, how how callous of Facebook not to take that into consideration. Everyone's trying to do their own research. Yeah. <laughs> All the anti-vaxxers were lost for a moment because they couldn't get through to their primary uh, journal, Facebook. Um, so I do wonder what Facebook is going to do moving forward here because this is probably the biggest outage they've ever had. Um, I stand to be corrected, but to my mind, I think this is by far the biggest outage they've had in terms of what products are affected and how long they were down for. Um, I don't know what Facebook is going to do to resolve this. Uh, hopefully, they they make their services a bit more robust with some some fallovers, just so that this doesn't happen again. Um, but yeah, Facebook, as of uh, time of recording, is working now. It has been working for most of the week. Uh, there have been some oddities, though, uh, but this is all anecdotal from users around the internet saying that things like Instagram isn't playing properly, uh, stories from Instagram aren't playing audio correctly, just some weird oddities. So if you see something that's weird, maybe just report it. There is a way to report stuff on Facebook's uh, products. Just maybe drop them if you spot something weird. Um Moving on, though, onto what I think is the more important uh, aspect of Facebook's uh, highlights or spotlights in the news this week. Um, a whistleblower whose name is Frances Hugen, uh, Hogan. Does anybody know how to say her name? Is it Haugen or Hugen? Yeah. I think Haugen. Yeah, I we'll think it's Haugen. I'm going to go with Haugen. Uh, it's, it's weird because you write these names, you never actually have to say them. Uh, the... The whistleblower, Frances Hogan, she used to be a former product manager at Facebook. Uh, She's now turned into a whistleblower. And she claims that Facebook purposefully hid research from the public. Uh, This research would have reportedly shed light on the safety of children, the efficacy of Facebook's artificial intelligence, and how how Facebook plays a role in the spreading of divisive and extreme messages. Uh, One of the things that I was kind of taken aback by was Hogan's or Haugen's comparison to tobacco companies. Um, she basically said that tobacco companies claimed that filter cigarettes were safer than cigarettes without filters. Um, and while the general public uh, and independent bodies could verify the authenticity of those claims, uh, the same cannot be done with Facebook because we don't know how the sausage is made, quite frankly. Um, so... One of her statements was, we are given no option other than to take their marketing messages on blind faith. Not only does the company hide most of its data, my disclosure has proven that when Facebook is directly asked questions as important as how do you impact the health and safety of children, they mislead and choose to mislead and misdirect. Facebook has not earned our blind faith. Um, So on this, we just need to step back a little bit. Robin, you covered a story regarding uh, Facebook's... uh, effect or sorry instagram's effect on the mental health of teen girls correct yeah that's right um it was a wall street journal report um they got access to internal documents um and 
it was interesting because Facebook actually initiated the study, uh, mm-hmm. but it didn't, it didn't make it public at the time. And it was specifically looking at how Instagram impacts uh, body image and specifically that of teen girls in the UK and US and found that it, it was quite detrimental uh, as far as that those kind of interactions go. Um, and yeah, the Wall Street Journal was able to kind of break that story and share the report uh, ahead of Facebook. And Facebook later on then shared their own version of the report, uh, redacted a few elements and really t- tried to manipulate the data in such that it it made made it look like this was a very, very small sample size and should not mm. necessarily be viewed as how the platform performs in general. Uh, but the fact that we got this information before Facebook was able to share it, um, we kind of have a better idea of what re- is really going on there. Yeah, so that was one of the, the highlights of, of the, the testimony was that Facebook does research but then doesn't tell you the full story. Um, which I mean, I, I, I kind of get it, right? You don't want to you don't want to divulge everything, but at the same time, if you're going to spin the data into something that is not accurate and not fairly representing the state of your platform, that that's a real problem. I, I'm not saying that Facebook needs to divulge all of its research for free because research costs a lot of money to do, right? And when companies do massive surveys and research into stuff like you don't generally get that stuff for free. However, in the context of Facebook, where it's looking at users and what it's what the effect of Facebook is on the mental health of those users, um, the habits of those users, I think it's important for Facebook to share that stuff and be open with it. Um, and I, I'm going to divert here because f- shortly after uh, Haugen gave her testimony before the U.S. Senate and the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, Mark Zuckerberg, who was on holiday at the time, decided to send out an, uh, a memo to his company, which he then published on Facebook. And it made me incredibly angry to read this. Um, I'm going to read one paragraph here because it's just it shows you how out of touch this man is with the rest of the world. So it reads, many of the claims don't make any sense. If we wanted to ignore research, why would we create an industry-leading research program to understand these important issues in the first place? If we didn't care about fighting harmful com- content, then why would we employ so many people dedicated to this than any other company in our space? Any other company in our space, even ones larger than us. If we wanted to hide our results, why would we have established an industry-leading standard for transparency reporting on what we're doing? And if social media were as responsible for polarizing society as some people claim, then why are we seeing polarization increase in the U.S. while it stays flat or declines in many countries with just as heavy use of social media around the world? So, excuse me, uh, Zuckerberg's defense then is to ask rhetorical questions. Um why would you create an industry-leading research program to understand these important issues in the first place? Well, Zuck, I hate to break it to you, but the tobacco industry did the exact same thing in the early days of cigarettes. Right? They came out and said, well, our doctors say that they are safe. Smoke a cigarette while you're pregnant. I'm sure everybody's seen those old-school cigarette ads, like have a headache, smoke a lucky strike, or whatever it would be. The fact that you do your own research does not mean that the research is good, Right? And it also doesn't mean that you are taking that research seriously. I, For instance, I could have somebody say to me, oh, could you research how many spelling errors I make in my day-to-day work, right? And that person comes back and says, well, Brendan, you know, 59% of your, uh, of your work has spelling errors in it. I mean, I can take that under advisement, but I can also just ignore it just as easily. So the fact that you do the research does not mean that you are taking that research seriously or using it to adapt your product? Or am I just going crazy here, guys? Yeah, and, and, and something you didn't mention at all is that why are you doing that research? You're probably not doing it for the you know the benefit of humankind. You're probably doing that research to make more money. You're probably looking into um, habits of your users. You're looking into spending habits, and then you want to turn that into advertising. So I don't understand why you keep saying we're doing these industry-leading things. You're not doing that for funsies, not doing that out of the kindness of your own heart. You're doing it because you want to advance Facebook in one way or the other. And even if it was only for 
the benefit of humankind, you're probably also doing it just for positive PR spin, and you're doing it for this exact situation. Mm -hmm. You're doing it so that when you get backlash of something, you have these whataboutisms and saying, oh, we do X, Y, and Z, we're the good guys. Even if you invested billions of dollars just to have a PR response, now you're getting to use it as a PR response, just as intended. So it, it is... They're not doing it just for fun. They're doing it to advance themselves in some way. And he doesn't mention any of that, obviously, because it would make him look bad. Robin, your thoughts? Yeah, uh, for me, the research, um, I'm not too sure what the intention was, but to me, it smacks of giving Facebook more data sets to work with and to show advertisers. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the only reason why Facebook would be commissioning all this kind of research is is that they have more data to kind of show advertisers and say, this is what Facebook can do for you. And that's really what uh, Hogan was getting to, is that profit comes before the safety of its users. And uh, for for me, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's response was very much similar to how um, Tim Cook spoke to Congress uh, Early in the year, um, I know that they, ch- they chat to Congress quite often, but early in the year, a number of the big tech firms, I, I, I guess the, the big four or five, um, sat before Congress and kind of discussed uh, their platforms. And Tim Cook said, America needs Apple. And I feel that Mark Zuckerberg feels the same way about Facebook. Yeah. We need Facebook. Facebook doesn't need us. And he's quite happy for him to do as he sees fit. And we must just tell the line. And let me just distract you with all these uh, faux, socially conscious efforts that we're making. And yeah, it's yeah, it, it, it does become quite frustrating because whenever you kind of engage with uh, Facebook executives or kind of deal with Facebook at events and stuff like that, the company talks about how much good it's doing. But you talk to a an impartial user and their experience of Facebook is very, very different. Mm. So yeah, it, it, the, the two don't marry up at all. I mean, just anecdotally, uh, a friend of mine and I were talking about this yesterday, just about Facebook in general. And they were telling me that they are increasingly seeing right wing, co- sorry, left wing content on their, uh, on their Facebook feed. And they are incredibly liberal. They are not conservative at all. They are incredibly liberal. But Facebook keeps pushing this conservative content at them. Um, And it's, I mean, their values and my values are very closely aligned. But I don't get that content. So why is this person getting that content? Um, But I do just want to carry on reading what uh, a a few more excerpts of what Mark Zuckerberg wrote this week. He said, at the heart of these accusations is the idea that we prioritize profits over safety and well-being. That's just not true. For example, one way that has been called into question is when we introduced – one move that has been called into question, rather, is when we introduced the meaningful social interactions change to Newsfeed. This change showed fewer viral videos and more content from friends and family, which we did knowing it would mean people spent less time on Facebook, but that research suggested it was the right thing for people's well-being. Is that something a company focused on profits over people would do? Yes, because it still meant that people were spending time on Facebook, Mark. Just because they're not looking at divisive content from viral videos doesn't mean they're not looking at divisive content from family and friends. Over the last year, families have been torn apart because of the COVID-19 pandemic, because of Donald Trump, because of the vaccines. People have been torn apart because of opinions that have been posted on Facebook. And sure, you introduce the meaningful social interactions change way too late, right? After there had been misinformation about the U.S. elections, about COVID-19, about vaccines, about 5G, about QAnon, everything under the sun was on Facebook. And only when people said, hey, Mark, you need to do something about this, did you introduce these changes. Right. So don't come here and say, oh, but, you know, we did we did some work. You still prioritize profits. You just changed where people were seeing these things. It just boggles the mind that this is his defense. Before I move on, though, um, the argument that we deliberately push content that makes people angry for profit is deeply illogical. I can kind of see that. I don't see them deliberately, but unknowingly, sure. 
We make money from ads and advertisers consistently tell us they don't want their ads next to harmful or angry content. And we don't know any tech company that sets out to build products that make people angry or depressed. The moral, business, and product incentives all point in the opposite direction. I disagree with that. Wholeheartedly, I disagree with that. Because you can have a platform where people are angry all the time. Look at Twitter, right? That platform is literally just people angry all the time. So the fact that you don't, that you think that this, that you, the defense is that you didn't deliberately push it, that doesn't absolve you of anything. Just because you didn't knowingly push content, you still push that content into news feeds. Whether it was deliberate or not, your mechanisms for making sure that content doesn't get into people's news feeds needed to be there in the first place. And they weren't. Yeah, it's also ridiculous that they bring up Trump. Like, oh, Trump caused all of this as if Facebook wasn't a big part of why he was elected. <laughs> they, only, they only got rid of him on Facebook when he was out of the White House, correct? Yeah, yeah, that wasn't only them. It was also, I think both it and um, Twitter and a few other ones, they did it in like the last two or three weeks or yeah. the month before he was out. So they're like, oh, it's, it's again, it's virtual, uh, virtue signaling where they say, oh, we, we don't like Trump and Trump is on the way out. But you only did that when he can't, uh, you know, he can't uh, get revenge on you guys. They didn't want to touch Trump because they were worried. I mean, he was the president. They were worried that he would retaliate if they if they banned him. But they only did it when he was losing his power and he couldn't do anything. So again, it's just virtue signaling. Again, I do. It wasn't just Facebook that did it. It was Twitter and a lot of other places. They only sought to ban him right when he was leaving the White House. So uh, I do just want to reference something. Uh, the Verge did a really great story on this that they titled Facebook Runs the Coward's Playbook to Smear the Whistleblower. Um, and in that, a Facebook uh, representative basically said, well, you know, Francis wasn't really with us for a long time. Uh, you know, here it is. Today, a Senate Commerce Subcommittee held a hearing with product manager at Facebook who worked at the company for two years, had no direct reports, never attended a decision uh, a decision. So, sorry, I need to expand this. Uh, a decision point meeting with C-level executives and testified more than six times to not working on the subject matter in question. We don't agree with her characterization on the many issues she testified about. Despite all this, we agree on one thing. Uh, it's time to begin to create standard rules for the internet. It's been 25 years since the rules for the internet have been updated. And instead of expecting the industry to make societal decisions that belong to legislators, it's time for Congress to act. That is Director of Policy Communications, Lena Pitch. Um, that's just disgusting, right? This person who is saying all this stuff, well, you know, she never attended a C-suite level meeting. She had no direct report. So don't listen to what she has to say. Excuse me? Like, that's ridiculous like are we just now like blaming the whistleblower just saying well they spoke out but you know they just they, they don't know what they're talking about it, it, i would actually value her opinion more because she didn't make any decisions because if she was a c-level executive and she came out after she left the company and said facebook sucks then you would say but you were part of the decision making exactly. team why didn't you try and make better decisions is that person saying she didn't make the decisions actually gives her more credence <laughs> yeah, I agree with you there. It's it's just, it's such a weird disconnect. It's like, oh, well, whistleblowers, and we see this this trend where people are saying, oh, people must come forward and they must speak out uh, ever since with things like uh, Activision Blizzard. Like there's this, this call to arms basically from employees to speak out when they see something that they, they don't want to, with the, that they don't think is good. But then you have the director of policy communications for Facebook saying, well, we can't trust this whistleblower because they only worked here for less than two years and they didn't attend C-level meetings. What is that, Facebook? What, what, what is that? I, I'm, I'm shocked that this, this was the stance that they took. And I'm sure that in the next weeks we'll get some properly written uh, press releases from the PR team saying, well, you know, Mark was really misguided with what he said and so was Lena. And that's not our official stance as a company because the PR machine works 24 hours a day. I'm sure that they are trying to, to fix this massive issue that they've caused for themselves now, but they need to actually take some action here. Like it doesn't help to say, oh, well, you know, we've been campaigning for so long about changing the rules. Have you though? Because when Trump proposed that you were very much against him, oh, we're not arbiters of truth. 
oh we're just we just publish what people say we're not a platform we're not a a, a a news outlet i oh my head hurts it's just <laughs> it astounds me that this is the stance this company took but well, it's also not surprising clinton yeah I think a lot of people saw through this because something we didn't talk about um, when the uh, platform was down is that a lot of people left. Well, they didn't leave, but they came to Telegram. Mm. There's another story Robin wrote, and I was reading it before we started the podcast. And, man, all these people in tech are so smug because even though I do agree that Telegram is a better option, especially even just from a functionality standpoint, like when you join a group chat, all the group's past media is available to new users. Stuff like that, but then they put out this press release saying that they took in the people from Facebook and WhatsApp as refugees. I'm like, come on, guys, you're not Noah building an ark over here, you're not giving you know people a roof because they're escaping a war in the country or something, you're just another social media platform. So, yeah, all of these people are bad, but I mean, where are you gonna turn? Yeah, it's, it's one of these things where, amongst all of this talk. Facebook has become a necessary evil. Like you said, Brandon, a lot of companies depend on WhatsApp as business accounts or Facebook to post their stuff. And also just for us, um, you know, regular people, WhatsApp is an almost free alternative to everything. I mean, I've helped my parents talk to friends and relatives overseas, and we don't need to pay the ridiculous prices for phone calls to overseas. We just use the Wi-Fi, which is already here. And we talk to all our friends and family in South Africa over WhatsApp. And if you didn't have it, what would we do? There was a reason BlackBerry was so popular in South Africa for so long. Because the BlackBerry internet services combined with BBM made it not free, but an incredibly cheap option to the ridiculously high prices of data and the cost of communicating back then. And now WhatsApp and Facebook have taken that um, role. And what are we supposed to do? If Zuckerberg tomorrow said, I'm going back to my home planet and all the, <laughs> the Facebook stuff is shut down, you're on your own, there's going to be a mad scramble to try and replace it. And the problem is WhatsApp has become the de facto uh, instant messaging. And Instagram has become the de facto um, social media platform for things like models and pictures and photographers and all of that. And if they had to shut down tomorrow, there would be big problems. And we saw big problems when they went down. So, yeah, it's become a necessary evil. But could they just be a little less evil? Could they be less, you know, cartoonishly rubbing their hands together, petting a white cat evil, and just be more human? Please, please, Zuck. So, Go teach you how to be human. So I want to ask you guys, just as a way to wrap up before we just spend another hour complaining, um, how do we fix this? How do we fix this situation? Um, my thinking is get rid of Zuck, rework the C-suite at Facebook. Um, Zuckerberg can still be a director or whatever, but I don't think that him as chief executive officer signing off on decisions, uh, he needs to go now. He's been the CEO for way too long, way longer than most companies allow. Although I suppose you could say the same about uh, Jeffrey Bezos. Um, but yeah, I think that the first port of call is to get rid of that C-suite, rework it, and then Facebook needs to be a lot more transparent. I'm talking like regular transparency reports regular research into what it's being what's being done behind the scenes uh especially as regards the effect on mental health um and the divisive nature of facebook or rather how it's become so divisive divisive this is not the first time facebook has made an oopsie um and it's getting worse and worse every time one comes to light uh robin how do you think we solve the situation um so I don't think Facebook will ever change. I didn't. It doesn't matter how many times you compel Mark Zuckerberg to appear before Congress, or you ask him to prove that he's human and not a lizard. Um, I think you solve this by potentially breaking up Facebook. I think that the outage on Monday evening showed that Facebook perhaps controls too many key services for a lot of people across the globe. Mm. Um, I know that doesn't that doesn't address the issue of uh, harmful content and placing profit over user safety, but 
I don't think that'll ever change. I think the only thing you can potentially change is how much of your life is dependent on Facebook. Mm. That's kind of my view. Clinton? Um, um, I don't think just removing Zuck or even a lot of the C-suites will have an effect because Amazon is still a bad company and Bezos isn't the top of the pile anymore, the head of the snake. Mm. So I'm not sure... You know, we all want it to be like a movie. If you defeat the big bad guy, everything goes back to normal. Unfortunately, more like Hydra. Uh, you cut off one head and two grow back. Um, like Robin said, I think the only way is to break it up and for WhatsApp to be its own company and for Facebook to be its own company and all of that. But the U.S. has proven time and time again that if you pay lobbyists enough money, you can do whatever you want. And I don't think these giants will ever be broken up, just like Disney wouldn't ever be broken up. So... The only thing that can really happen is for Facebook to fall out of favor like MySpace and all the other ones. But Friendster. Yeah. It, it seems like that might never happen. I mean, never say never. Anything can happen. But I think the only way we'll go forward is if something happens naturally where a competitor comes along and they just offer such a better service that everybody leaves. Do I think that will happen? Almost no way. At least not in our lifetimes. Unless, I don't know, unless there's some kind of new tech where you implant something directly in your brain and then some kind of social media platform uses that better than Facebook can and then Facebook withers and dies. So, yeah, instead of cutting the head off the snake, we have to just starve it until it dies. And I hope that doesn't sound too dramatic, but I think that's the only way things are going to change. Yeah, I, I like Robin's piece of advice. Lessen how much you rely on Facebook products. Um over the last year, I've started to try and use them less and less. Unfortunately, that's not always possible because WhatsApp is, like you mentioned, Clinton, it has become the de facto communication um, <clears throat> platform for most people around the world. Uh, and yeah, I don't foresee people migrating off of Facebook uh, until something better shows up. Uh, what is that something better? Who knows? It's the it's the 2020s. Maybe in a decade's time, we'll have uh, telepathic communication between each other, or we'll be able to have. We'll all be wearing smart glasses, and you can look at somebody and see their entire life's history just by looking at them. Uh, that sounds very creepy, but I mean that's where technology is going ultimately. Yeah, Facebook disappointed once again. Though that's not really new. <laughs> Damn futuristic dystopia. Why did we have to live in one? I just wanted pills as food and flying cars. But now we have uh, one or two big companies controlling the entire internet. And when they go down, we all go down. So that's fun. The future is fun, guys. Um, I think that's going to wrap it us from wrap it up from us for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um like Robin said, lessen how much you rely on Facebook products. Start diversifying your social your social networks. Uh, just don't use Parler, please. That's just a bad <laughs> idea. Just a really bad idea. Use TikTok or uh, I was going to say Instagram, but that's owned by Facebook as well. Um, anyway, uh, from myself, Brendan Lotz, cheerio. From Clinton Matos. Hi, everyone. And from Robin Lichetti. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next week. Cheerio. Sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time.